Welcome to Brett. Moses is one of the most famous, beloved, complicated, and fascinating characters in the Bible. God chooses him and uses him to do extraordinary and history-defining things. He's a flawed and broken person, but nevertheless a truly great leader. In this series, we draw on his example to learn what real leadership looks like in God's kingdom and how all of us, however we view ourselves, can grow not just in our leadership, but more importantly, in our faith and maturity as God's disciples. We are continuing our series. We started a series last week uh, on the person of Moses, and uh, we're continuing on the, persons of Moses, on the person of Moses. How, how do we become, or what are the foundations for great leadership? And so today is um, Moses, how to be a great leader. Learn from our failures. Our failure. That's what we're going to spend the whole time talking about. Uh, And it does seem like um, failure is a sort of subject that's quite zeitgeisty at the moment. There is a popular podcast called How to Fail, uh, where a different celebrity each week comes on and talks about their greatest failures. Uh, Do you know what the Financial Times book of the year for 2023 was? It's by Amy Edmondson. She's a professor at Harvard Business School, and it's called The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Over Christmas, uh, with my extended family, we were around the dining table, and uh, um, someone had brought these cards that are part of another popular podcast, uh, and uh, they were sort of conversation starters. And the idea is you got your little conversation starter, you asked the question, and then everyone in the group had to um, answer the question. I thought we could just have a conversation, but no. Uh, We needed to have these conversation starters. And so there were sort of questions like, um, what advice do people always come to you? And then people gave their answers, uh, some more earnest than others. And anyway, my question was, what failure do you most cherish? Um... At the time, I wanted to say, I'll tell you the failure I least cherish, which is the failure to still be here in this room right now. But I didn't say that. I said, um, I reject the premise of the question, uh, which also wasn't really in the spirit of the game. But I said, I reject the premise of the question. Uh, I'm not sure. Are Are we really saying that we should cherish our failure? Or should we cherish the heartbreak we've caused? Should we cherish all the pain that we have given to other people? Should we really cherish these? I do not like the question. And everyone else in the room looked at their feet and sort of mumbled, and, uh, and then the game ended. Uh, <laughs> which failure do you cherish? Should we play the game now? Really, the point, I think, uh, that these games are playing is, and the interest in failure is actually quite an important and a positive one, which is that we don't need to fear failure, that often we can grow up being told you must succeed at everything you do, you must never, ever, ever, ever show any weakness, and all we want to hear about is your great successes, not the things that haven't gone so well in your life. Um, And I think it's a very good thing, the fear of failure not to be ashamed of. Hannah was telling me about the founder of Spanx, the underwear company. Uh, Sarah Blakely, I don't know if you've come across her, but she basically built that business from, the scratch, from scratch up into a billion dollar company. 
She tells the story of how her dad, every evening around the dinner table, would ask her brother and her, as they were growing up, what did you fail at today? And it was clear if they had nothing to say that her dad would be quite disappointed. So she realized that what she needed to do was to go and try something every day and then tell her dad how it had gone. And so she would say, you know, I tried out for this thing at school and I was horrible at it. And her dad would beam at her and high-five her and go, well done, fantastic. It left her a little confused to start with, but soon she realized that what her dad was doing was redefining what failure is and what it isn't. Failure wasn't about the outcome. It was about not trying at all. And the great news for all of us is that, at its heart, Christianity actually embraces imperfection. Because, after all, Christianity is about perfect God in perfect Jesus coming and embracing all of us in all of our imperfection. And so, the Christian claim goes, the more we understand of the unconditional love of God, our Father, who sees it all and yet embraces us, the more we are freed from expectation because he places no expectations on us. Rather, he says, I love you, and we are freed from the fear that we might mess up. So, read all those books, listen to all those podcasts. They will inspire you, no doubt, but listen all the more to the voice of your Father in heaven who believes in you more than anyone else who loves you more than anyone else. In fact, he loves you actually unconditionally. We often talk about unconditional love for our kids. And try as we might, we can't. There are conditions, unfortunately. And you, in the best of your human relationships, have actually been loved conditionally. Because the only one who can love us unconditionally is God. And the more you receive his unconditional love, the more you will be free from worries about messing up. Because it's his perfect love, says the Bible, nothing else, no one else's love that casts out all fear. So, fear of failure. That's not actually what I'm talking about at all. Today, I'm actually talking about actual failure. That's what we're doing. Failure, failure, failure. And failure in two sorts. The first is failure which might look like failure to some, but importantly, in God's eyes, is not failure at all. And the second is failure in God's eyes. So those are the two, and Moses, lucky old Moses, does both. And so here is a reading from Sarah, and it's Exodus chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Exodus 2, verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who are you, ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I have done must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of, heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs of water to water their father's flock. 
Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, is that his name? Reuel? Reuel, Reuel, uh, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he, Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So last week, we looked at the situation surrounding the birth of Moses. But now in the following verse, verse 11, we hear that Moses has grown up. And later Christian tradition suggests that he was 40 years old at this point. In fact, you can divide his life into three lots of 40. 40 years of being um, in the Egyptian court, 40 years of uh, leading his people out through the wilderness, and then 40 years uh, of, um, sorry, 40 years in Midian, and then 40 years leading his, his people out into uh, the wilderness until they reached the promised land. Now, we don't know much about the intervening 40 years in the court of Pharaoh. But we can assume he grew up in the royal household as an Egyptian prince. And the book of Acts, uh, chapter 7, says this, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And Josephus, who is a first century Christian, uh, sorry, Jewish historian, indicates uh, at one point that when Egypt was being attacked by the Ethiopians, Moses it was who was tasked with leading the Egyptians to a famous victory. So, Moses has lived for 40 years like a prince. He was powerful, he was rich, he had the greatest of educations, and he had proved himself on the battlefield. But now, verse 11, one day he went out to where his own people were. It's unclear when Moses understood that he was not a natural-born Egyptian. Perhaps he'd always known it, but he preferred to surround himself with all the comforts of his royal privileges. But whatever has gone on up until now, here things are going to change. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. The author does something uh, telling here. He emphasizes, emphasizes one phrase twice. He went out to where his own people were. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. This is the turning point for Moses. Moses' eyes are no longer blind to what's going on. These aren't just slaves anymore, they are people. And they aren't just people, they are his own people. This is a moment for Moses when he makes the choice to step away from all his privilege and all his upbringing. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament puts it like this, Hebrews 11:24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Uh, a few years ago when I was working in London, I worked uh, for a church there for a long time, I heard a story of uh, a young woman who had come to the church. And she was not a Christian, but someone had invited her to Alpha. And she'd come along to Alpha, and she'd loved the talks and found them very compelling. And she was excited about um, uh, what this might mean for her. And particularly, she was excited about going on this weekend away that we um, do here uh, to hear about the person of the Holy Spirit, how she could have a personal relationship with Jesus. She was um, uh, desperate to know that God is real, to put her faith in, in God. She was very excited. And so the night before this weekend started, she got a call from a man that she'd met a few times and she knew sort of quite well. And this man was incredibly wealthy uh, and a bit of a, a playboy, really. And uh, he phoned her up and he said, uh, I want you to be my girlfriend and I want you to go wherever I go. You will be on yachts and mansions around the world you will be mine, I will give you everything you ever need, all the money in the world, but you have to commit to me now. And we are leaving now on my private jet tonight. What do you say? She said, I want to go instead tomorrow night to a crappy hotel on the windswept shores of Britain in the middle of December to find out about Jesus. So thank you, but no thank you. I'm done. Thank you. What makes people choose things like that? Why would anyone choose to sacrifice comfort and success to live a life severely below what they might expect? Why, for instance, does anyone ever give money to a church? Why do people choose to give their time helping in kids' church? Why do people choose to give their time helping on the Serve the City team? Why does Moses choose downward mobility? Why did he choose to open his eyes? Well, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Whenever we make these sorts of decisions, decisions to go after the values of God's kingdom as opposed to the values of the world, what we do is we act by faith. We say, even though this could work out worse for me right now, I believe in God. And God says, ultimately, it's going to work out better for me. And he knows best, and I am putting my life in his hands. That's what we're doing. And of course, we don't always see the fruit of these decisions in our lives. Careers actually may never take off. Money may always be tight. But the reward of heaven will always, always be there, both here and now and forever. Jesus puts it like this, Matthew 19. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and they will inherit eternal life. Now, I've always been a bit sensitive to talk about 
uh, the future heaven in this context, not because I don't believe it, but I know that a lot of people have grown up with the idea that the only reason to be a Christian is to make sure that everything goes right when you die. And that's it, and nothing else really matters. And I've been sensitive to talk about that because I want to make everyone clear that heaven is both here right now, the eternal life that Jesus promises is here for you, starting from this very moment, and it is also there forever and ever in eternity. It's not Christianity just pie in the sky when you die. It's also cake on the plate while you wait. So we've always wanted to be careful to say that Jesus' eternal life is here for you now. And it means a closeness to him. It means a knowledge of his complete forgiveness, a knowledge of his unconditional love, a knowledge of his guidance and purpose, of him being with you forever and ever, right from now. But it also is a glorious future reward in heaven. And the reality is, for many of us, we don't receive all the blessings that perhaps we deserve for our time on earth. But we will. God, says Paul in Romans, will repay everyone for what they've done. And so when we live with this eternal perspective, this view of everything that's going on for us from heaven, you can view all the troubles of this world in their correct perspective. Not, of course, not existing, but less important in the light of eternal joy forever and ever and ever. So, first point, Moses' failure, his initial failure, is not really a failure in God's eyes at all. He chooses the better thing, even though to anyone looking on who doesn't know God, it really does look like failure. His second, though, really is a failure in God's eyes. Verse 11, Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses clearly angry. Righteous anger, even. He saw injustice, he saw violence, and he riled against it. But he let his anger burn into murder. As Paul counsels in Ephesians, in your anger, in your righteous anger, do not sin. Moses, in his anger, sins. He commits the sin of murder because I think he's also guilty of something a little more subtle, which I want to have a look at. Let me ask you a question. Was it God's will that this slave should not be beaten by his captor? Of course it was. Was it God's will that all his people ultimately should be freed from slavery? Of course it was. Is it, in fact, always God's will that injustice, enslavement, violence be rid from the whole universe? Of course it is. But it is one thing to know God's will it's quite another thing to do God's will in his time and in his way. Moses was impatient for the will of God, and so he took matters into his own hands. And how often do we do the same? 
I really, really need a relationship right now. I do not feel called to singleness. I do believe that God wants me to find someone. I do believe that I need a relationship. I should have a relationship. God wants a relationship for me. And so I've decided I've waited too long. And now I am going to choose anyone. In fact, whoever comes up first, that will be the one because I need the relationship right now. Now, I'm not saying that um, we shouldn't put ourselves out there. It's very important to explore relationships. We're going to do another um, singles night of dating fun. Uh, it's important to put ourselves out there. However, there is a big difference, isn't there, between putting ourselves out there and not trusting God with our relationships, doing purely things in our own strength and understanding for our own purposes at our own times. At some point, uh, relatively soon, Hannah and I are going to um, put our house up uh, for sale because of various reasons, nothing you need to worry about. Uh, but we um, are going to sell our house. Would you like to buy it? We'll do you a good offer. <laughs> and we've been obviously talking a lot about this. And I, I believe, of course, that God wants us to have a good house sale across all metrics. I, I believe that God wants it to be stress-free and that we would get so much more than it's worth. Uh, and obviously, there's lots of earthly wise things we can do. We can research the market and find the best realtor and have sort of good educated guesses about uh, the best time to market it in order to get the best price, etc., etc. But ultimately, as Hannah is very, very good at reminding me, we also believe that our lives are in the hands of the greatest realtor the universe has ever seen. And we can therefore trust entirely his prompting and his timing and his guidance more than we can any earthly ideas. So, as Hannah reminds me over and over again, why don't you just actually practice what you preach? Let's not push things. But we get impatient, don't we? We push and push. I need this now and God's forgotten me, so I better do it myself. Moses was impatient. And in his impatience, he failed spectacularly. Do not be impatient for the timing of the Lord. And in doing that, don't forget to see the wood for the trees. One writer sums up Moses' failure beautifully like this. Moses dedicated himself to the will of God, but not to the God whose will it was. Moses dedicated himself to the will of God, but not to the God whose will it was. I was reading about a uh, church leader this week who knew God's will in general terms, and obviously God's will was uh, God wants a really big church. God wants everyone to be in his church, in his global church. He has come so that everyone might believe. And this... Uh, Church leader said, I, I knew this, and the thing is, my church was going really well. There were loads of people in our church, and we were kind of too uh, full for the building. So I thought, in my wisdom, what we need is a big, bigger building. So we're going to pray, and uh, we're going to ask for money to build this bigger building. And everyone was like, oh, great, yeah, we'll build a bigger building. Let's build a bigger building. And lots of money came in, but not enough. And then over time, the bigger building still didn't happen. It was a bit of a failure. But this church leader said, I started pushing, and I pushed and I pushed. 
And all I would talk about every week was money. We need money. And I would think of different ways of trying to extract money from my poor congregation who didn't have any more money to give. And I would guilt trip them. And I would say, this is what God's doing and you're not in God's will. And soon people started leaving the church and we still didn't have enough money. And I was pushing and pushing and pushing. And surely God's will wants us to, be, to have a bigger church so we can fit more people in. But no. All of a sudden, we're talking about the will of God, but we're not talking about God. And the same is true, I think, of so many other areas of life. Uh, I need to be careful here, but how often have we seen Christians on both sides of the political divide who do know the will of God, the desire to see justice on whatever issue it is, racial inequality, sexual ethics, reproduction rights, they know the will of God, but they've lost sight of the God whose will it is. And they stop acting from the spirit of God, but from the flesh. And they become militant and mean-spirited and narrow and judgmental, puffed up on their pride and their rightness. I am speaking for God here. Perhaps. But you stopped speaking like God for a long time. The reality is the heart of the Christian faith is not that we needed to know the truth of God. The heart of the Christian faith is that we needed to know God. If all we needed was the truth of God, God would have sent a prophet or a teacher to tell us what the truth was, but instead he came as himself so that we might know him as a person. One of the things um, that has impressed me most about our erstwhile colleague, um, now dearly departed, Raoul, rest in peace, Uh, who used to run the Silver City here was, and those who'll know him, and, and Katie and Noah will um, ably carry on this tradition. But what so impressed me about Raoul is, and often dealing with difficult situation and difficult people, he never became judgmental. He was always so gracious. He was always so kind and gentle to those people who sometimes just kind of um, threw it back in his face. Because Raoul doesn't just know the will of God. He knows the God whose will it is. And he puts a higher value on knowing God than just doing his will. So Moses failed first in the world eyes, but not in God's. But then he failed in God's eyes. And where this leads him is to the desert in Midian, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Deserts are places of isolation, are they not? Moses knows no one, and he's all alone, fleeing for his life. And deserts are places of uselessness, are they not? Moses has no purpose at all, no prospects, no job, no calling. All he can do is sit down by a well. And deserts are places of embarrassment, are they not? Moses goes from royalty to nothing. What must his friends back in Pharaoh's palace be saying about him? What a loser. He's gone to Midian to sit by a well. Now, failure does not always lead 
to all of these things. But I think it tends to lead to some sort of desert experience. And so for the rest of this talk, I want to talk to people specifically who feel like they are in such a situation. Uh, when we first arrived here uh, to plant this church, uh, Adam, who I knew and some of you know, and I decided to go and have a look at a church building, a disused church building, to see if we could rent it. And we, I was newly off the boat. Uh, we went to this, uh, to this building that was kind of falling apart, and the realtor said, oh, so what do you want to do in this building? We've had some interest in it. People want to do these cool, exciting things. What do you want to do? I said, oh, in this church, disused church building, we want to run a church. And his face was sort of a mix between uh, shock and uh, pity, uh, really. And he said, I remember it so clearly, he said, you, you want to run a church? Do you know which town you're in? You want to run a church at this time of history in Los Angeles? Have you thought about doing something else? <laughs> Literally, anything else. I honestly think anything would be a better idea than that. It's very encouraging. Now, in isolation, that probably would have been okay, but it all came off the back of we'd left uh, the UK, um, having actually sort of given up quite a comfortable existence there. Uh, I was working for a church, as I said. Uh, our kids were very happy in the school. They were quite young. Uh, but what we'd done is we'd given up that job. We'd uh, given up the school places that our kids were in. We'd uh, given up uh, our house. We'd rented out our house. And then we had this huge delay on our visa so that we were sort of stuck in limbo. And it went on for months, months and months. We moved house 27 times in 17 different places. Uh, kept on going back to my mum's house, which was very kind of her. I don't think she loved us coming back every time, but that's what happened. And we were going, I don't know what's going on. And all our friends and family, I think they... Um, uh, really cared about us, and I think at times they believed us, but I know that they had the same thoughts as we did, which is, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? It was uh, a very much a desert time for us. But the thing is that God always uses these desert times for our good. Because, in fact, it's only sometimes in these desert places that we are actually in a position to hear what God needs to tell us. We're only actually open to trusting him because we have nowhere else to turn. Consider Moses. Firstly, he experiences the rejection of his leadership from his own people. Verse 14 after trying to break up the fight between two Israelites, the man said to Moses, who made you ruler and judge over us? This is his experience that he takes into the desert. And in that desert, God is preparing Moses for what he is actually going on to experience throughout his future calling, the rejection over and over and over again of his leadership from his very own people. But what God is teaching him is to trust in God's calling, not the response of the people. Secondly, Moses experienced what it is to be on the run. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. In the desert, 
God is preparing Moses for what it will be like to lead a whole nation on the run. Thirdly, Moses experiences what it is to be an outcast. Verse 21. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. In the desert, God is preparing Moses for what it will be like to lead a nomadic people through a wilderness for 40 years, foreigners in a foreign land. And Moses experiences what it is to be a shepherd. Verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. Moses doesn't just learn what it is to become a shepherd of Midian's daughter's sheep. God teaches him to be a shepherd of Midian's daughters too. He's their protector, he's their defender, and in the desert, God is preparing him to shepherd all the people in the years to come. So how about you? How is it for you if you find yourself in some sort of desert experience right now? It's a desert, no doubt one of wilderness and isolation, sense of uselessness perhaps. But can I encourage you? It's a place in which God is still with you and he wants to grow and he wants to teach and he wants to beckon you into more of his experience of life. The time Hannah and I had waiting for our visa it's probably one of the hardest, worst times of my life. I never, ever want to do that again. I want a happy life. I just want a really happy life for the rest of my life. Thank you, God. But it was also one of the greatest experiences. I have actually never felt closer to God. I felt and I experienced God in ways I never experienced him before. And what I know is that in planting this church, it has not been easy. It feels like as soon as something good happens, something terrible happens straight away afterwards. But I'm certain for both of us that if we had not been through that period of preparation, we would not have been able to exercise and use the muscles of faith that we learned in that place. The time of being actually prepared And what we believe from that experience is that God is true and that he's with us and he won't let us fail and he won't let us fall. Let me end with this. As I said last week, as Christians, when we read the Old Testament, we are always um, to read it in the light of the New Testament because we naturally know the end of the story. And it all works out in the end. It's great. And when we know 
the end of the story, when we read the end of the story back into the beginning of the story, we see that Moses' experience is not just one story. It's not just the story of God's people in isolation, but rather it's like a foreshadowing, a precursor of all that is to come. It's a precursor to God's ultimate story of redemption for the whole world in Jesus Christ. And in Moses' story, we actually see Jesus' story. Because like Moses, Jesus went from the highest to the lowest. He had all the riches of royalty given up for the sake of people. And like Moses, Jesus was rejected by his own over and over and over again. But it didn't mean that he rejected you or me or anyone else. Rather, he prays to his Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And just like Moses, Jesus is the protector of his flock. He's the protector not necessarily from earthly things, but from spiritual things. Jesus' battle is against all the powers of evil that can rob you and the people you love of life. And that is whom Jesus is protecting you against. But he's not just the protector of his flock. Like Moses, he's the shepherd of his flock. He leads people out and gives his life up for them. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, there's this um, very sort of odd quotation. Jesus and his parents have fled to Egypt because Herod has decided that he's going to kill all newborns, having heard uh, that Jesus has been born. But after they return from Egypt, Matthew says this, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Now that is a quotation from the prophet Hosea, chapter 11. The issue is, though, when Hosea says that, Hosea is talking about God's people, Israel, actually being taken out of Egypt. He's not talking about a Messiah. He's certainly not talking about Jesus. And yet Matthew quotes it, talking directly about Jesus. But what Matthew is doing is being very, very deliberate here. In talking about Jesus and using this prophecy about Jesus, he is saying that in Jesus, all of humanity, all of God's people, all those made in his image are being taken out of captivity in Egypt, are being taken out of spiritual captivity Captivity to things that have been said about you. Captivity to wrong thoughts about what God is like, about what you are like, about what the world is like. He is taking people out of captivity from the things that they have got themselves involved in, which they wish they hadn't, that is just causing them pain. Out of the captivity of things that have been done to you, that should never, ever have been done to you, and yet you carry the scars of them. Jesus is taking the whole of humanity out of captivity, is what Matthew's saying. What he has come to do is bring freedom to everyone. So what that means for you, particularly for you if you feel like you are in a desert today, is that this will not last forever. We may be bruised, but we are not rejected. 
We may be humbled, but we are not humiliated. God is for you. He is not against you. And because of Jesus, the glorious light, the glorious joy of eternal life and heaven is yours because he has won and he has destroyed all the evil powers that ensnare us and hold us back. And he is welcoming us into his glorious future. So whatever you're going through, it is not the end. It is not your lot for life. There is hope and there is a future because of Jesus. Amen. Oh,